And we are live in a huge win for free speech. A circuit court struck down a challenge of a Texas law that seeks to prevent big tech censorship. Heartland Government Relations Director Cameron Schulte is going to be joining us to talk us about this. Uh, talk to us about this victory. Also, Biden says the pandemic is over. We say duh, but many others are angry. We're going to be talking about this and more in episode 364 of the In the Tank podcast. Welcome to the In the Tank podcast. As always, I'm your host, Donald Kendall. And joining me today, we've got a full crew. We've got Jim Likely, VP of the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? I'm doing very well, despite the news that I heard this week that because of a carbon dioxide shortage of all things, that there could be huge spike price or a, a spike in prices of beer uh, around oh the country. But God. yeah, I know. I, I want all my friends to know that I'm I'm okay. I, I'm well stocked, but I understand <laughs> the entire state of Wisconsin is on suicide watch right now. Does that does that mean that we have to like start uh, turning on all the coal plants to get some new carbon dioxide emissions? Is that do we have to save the planet by resorting back to fossil fuels? I think that's what's going to happen. If you could sell carbon dioxide capture as a way to make beer prices go down, I bet you could get the entire country to get behind it. <laughs> that's right. I think, I, I think we need a strategic beer reserve. Oh, I think you're right. I think it's past <laughs> past time but, for that. That that. We Wisconsinites, we're going to make a run on Corbell to get us through the next nine months of winter. <laughs> Those clever remarks are from Cameron Schulte. He is our Director of Government Relations here at the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? I'm doing well. Always glad to join you guys. Oh, yeah. It's uh, once in a blue moon you join us, but you always bring some interesting insights. So I'm uh, excited to talk to you about our main topic. Also joining us, Chris Talgo, Senior Editor at the Heartland Institute. How are you today, good sir? Okay, I'm a little sad. It seems that summer's over here in the Chicagoland area, so I'm yeah. I'm, I'm the, a little I'm a little bummed. You got the flannel shirt on. You're already full <laughs> swing when it comes to uh, <laughs> embracing the fall. Stating, so is, isn't today like got... the first official day of fall? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah there you go. Perfect timing. Chris is probably burning a pumpkin candle in his <laughs> in in his office already. Has his comfy, cozy socks on. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Listening to his Indigo Girls. Making making s'mores, you know. <laughs> so we have a lot to cover today. A lot to cover. But before we do, I always have that message at the beginning of the episode uh, for those people that are listening to the audio only version of the show, which is the majority of our listeners. And I encourage you to join us a day earlier on Thursday at noon central time. You can uh, watch us streaming on Facebook and Twitter and Rumble and YouTube. You can join the conversation, put your comments and questions in the feed. Maybe we'll show your comments on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. So who, who do we got in? Uh, who's here today? Who's who's joining us? I see Janice. I see TM Willemsa. I see Gary in the chat. Jason, Abel Windsor, Cowboy Ray Rogers. A lot of our uh, standard crew here, so I'm uh, excited to see what you guys have to say about some of our topics. To be happy sure. early birthday to a TM Malemza. Oh, nice insight there. That's that's great. Uh, the only other thing of house cleaning that I should uh, that we should mention right off the bat is uh, reference to that little postcard that is above Jim's mm -hmm. shoulder there, because we have a benefit dinner upcoming, 28th annual. Heartland Institute Benefit Dinner featuring Yomi Park, who is a North Korean defector and uh, activist. She will be joining us for our benefit dinner taking place on, what is it, October 21st, I yep. think. That's a Friday. Uh, tickets are on sale. You can go to heartland.org. There will be a little banner thing or some type of little uh, featured image you can click on. Or you can go to benefit.heartland.org for information and tickets and all that type of stuff. We'll all be there surely. So uh, if you're a constant listener of the show and you're in the area, you want to join us, maybe you will see our faces in real life. Jim, any other things that we should talk about before we kind of jump into some of our topics here? 
No, that'll do it. I really do hope that uh, a lot of you, especially if you are a listener, if you're a listener in the Chicagoland area, that you will come to our benefit dinner because it's going to be a fantastic, unforgettable night with Yomi Park. I mean, her story of escape from North Korea is going to change your life. It really will. And it's also a great way to help support the Heartland Institute and this podcast. So, uh, and again, as Donnie said, to meet us in person. So I hope to see a lot of you there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, all right. So let's, uh, there, there's been a, before we get into our main topic, um, there's been a story that's been kind of going around and it has to do with uh, potential, potential 2024 presidential candidate, Ron DeSantis. Maybe I'm talking out of turn when it comes to that, but uh, he's been in a little bit of a news cycle because he did a, I don't know how to describe it, a stunt where he he had 50 migrants transported up to Martha's Vineyard to see how they how they're going to deal with the situation and um it's been a kind of an interesting evolving story um Jim you probably know a little bit more about this than I do you want to take it well, yeah, I mean, we we actually, you, you asked, should we talk about this on the podcast this week? I'm like, yeah, you know, that's kind of old news. Um, but it's not because it's an ongoing story, I think. So I think we should address it. I mean, uh, yeah, so DeSantis has decided and uh, the governor of Texas as well, uh, Greg Abbott, has decided, well, all of you uh, preening liberals in your so-called sanctuary cities, uh, while cities like, uh, you know, El Paso and, uh, you know, other border towns in Texas are being inundated by thousands of, uh, you know, human refugees of illegal immigrants every single day. Hey, how about you sanctuary cities that are, you know, highly populated and very well funded, help us out and deal with some of these people. So they started flying yeah. uh, these illegal immigrants up Instead to places just like virtue Chicago. Signaling. Right. Instead of just yeah. virtue signaling, why don't you actually uh, try it out a little bit? Yeah. Let's see if there's some, uh, if there's some, you know, some, some cattle under that hat, as they might say <laughs> in, uh, in Texas. And so, you know, so he sent, so Ron DeSantis started calling. I think we should call these, you know, freedom flights, you know, oh, uh, nice. getting these people into cities like Chicago. So uh, I think Texas sent a, a busload of uh, illegal immigrants into Chicago. And uh, our mayor, Mayor uh, Lori Lightfoot, was very upset about this, uh, you know, publicly reprimanded the Texas governor for doing such a thing. Meanwhile, Chicago is a uh, is a sanctuary city. It makes uh, it passes. I would have probably passed 17 resolutions in the, you know, in the Trump administration alone, uh, decrying the so-called, you know, inhumane treatment by the Trump administration of, of illegal, illegal immigrants. Meanwhile, the, 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 the situation on the border is much worse. Than now we still have kids in cages. Only now we have more kids in more cages, and they're and they're even more overrun than they were during the Trump administration. And so she got really upset about it. And so what is the first thing she did? She put them on a bus and shipped them to a a rich leafy suburb of Chicago instead, so she wouldn't have to deal with them anymore. <laughs> and uh, and so um, you know when that was last week's headline or early last week's headline, and then Ron DeSantis said, "You know what, Governor Abbott, hold my beer," and he said a plane. <laughs> of 50, just 50 immigrants to Martha's Vineyard and other sanctuary community, um, probably the most leftist place in the United States, full of virtue signalers, full of white people, almost exclusively white. Uh, Barack Obama is very much in a minority with his $12 million estate on that island. And so he sent them there. And what happened? As people listening to this podcast probably already know, they didn't last fifty hours on that, <laughs> on that, on that island of Martha's Vineyard, and then they called in the military to get them out of there, and they shipped them off to a military base on Cape Cod, and so it, it was like a complete panic that they sent fifty Venezuelan immigrants up there uh, to yeah, Martha's Vineyard. And they didn't last two days and they shipped them out. So, you know, a lot of people were joking. Maybe we should put the people of Martha's Vineyard in charge of our immigration policy. And then we'd have it under control because they act fast, man. And they are they are pretty brutal about what they're going to do because they don't want you here. They move you out. Uh, well, you know, what's so what's what's so distorting about like the the media, the news cycle and all of that is the first story that I heard about, you know, in regards to all of this. Uh, when the when they actually arrived, these buses arrived. Was uh, this outpouring of help from the from the people of Martha's Vineyard, and they came with care packages, and they all banded together to help these uh, you know poor distraught people. And that's been the narrative on social media from this point on. You, you talked about how they they didn't last forty. 48 hours. They were they're put on buses. The you know the military helped get them out of there or whatever. 
if you were to ask your average leftist or anything, just like consuming the media that they see on, on, on social media or anything like that, they're like, no, no, no. They all banded together and helped. That's the narrative that they're that they're spinning over there. Well, they did Chris, band together and help. They banded together to help get them off their island. <laughs> Yeah, you won't hear about that part. You won't hear about that part. No, uh, uh, Chris, this was originally your idea to talk about this, so uh, feel free to throw in your two cents about any any angle of this story. Okay, so this calendar or this fiscal year, we've had two million uh, people cross the border illegally. Brian DeSantis flies fifty people to Martha's Vineyard, and this is the reaction that they take. It just goes to show that these people are not serious. Uh, but Donnie, this is this is a, a new development that I want to uh, uh, share uh -oh. with everybody. George Soros has <laughs> helped them uh, to fund a lawsuit against the uh, uh, governor of Florida for causing dizziness, for causing <laughs> uh, no kidding, for for causing dizziness, uh, for giving them ten dollar gift certificates to McDonald's when there are no McDonald's on Martha's Vineyard, <laughs> and in a host. Of other crimes against humanity, oh, so no. they are seeking, as 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 far as I know, seventy five thousand dollars per uh, person who was uh, flown to Martha's Vineyard, courtesy of Ron DeSantis, on a private jet. After he put them up in a hotel for four days, fed them, clothed them, treated them like royalty, so their lives are infinitely better off because of this. However, they are suing on behalf of a George Soros funded lawyer. Based uh, based on the fact that they have uh, been, uh, you know, like treated treated akin to the way that uh, Jews were uh, treated during, uh, you know. The oh my Oscar. God! Of course, I, uh, of I'm course, that has to be brought up in every no every conversation. I gotta tell you, as as a guy who travels, um, you know, touch down and and leave in forty four hours. That's quick turnaround. That's going to make anybody dizzy. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Good point. But but Donnie, the only reason I bring up that uh, you know parallel is because that's what all the talking heads on MSNBC oh, yeah. and CNN have been comparing this. Oh to. yeah, of course, of so, course they have. Oh, that doesn't yeah. surprise me at all. Cameron, we did not bring you on to talk about Martha's Vineyard, but if you have any comments about this other than glib remarks, feel free. <laughs> feel free no, to... um, you know, as a guy involved in politics, I, I I ooze glib remarks, but I'll save those for people who are much better looking and smarter than I am. Uh, Jim, uh, uh, feel free to touch on this, but then we we should get to our our last topic. We we should, but it, but it, some of these I have a couple of points more to make on this. Uh, Lori Lightfoot and other others on the left, other Democrats have accused Ron DeSantis of being guilty of human trafficking. I believe yeah. he's actually under no no joke. I believe there's actually a criminal investigation against him for supposedly kidnapping these uh, these 50 uh, Venezuelan immigrants and uh, and then trafficking them to the most wonderful place to be on earth, uh, <laughs> pretty much in the United States, especially this time of year. Martha's Vineyard, of course, is the is the retreat, the summer retreat of the uber, uber wealthy on the East Coast. It is off season. Most people have left now. They literally have thousands and thousands of beds to uh, to to house people yet mm. and they're a sanctuary city now if you're sanctuary city you're supposed to be welcoming to immigrants right you, you th these are the people who have the signs that you know i believe in science and hate has no uh, hate has no home here and uh humans are not illegal all that stuff but when it when it comes down to it when it when they can just uh extend a couple of days of of support for these people that are sent there until no they can't even last a couple of days they were working to get them off of there as soon as they landed and it's just it's you know the the hypocrisy of course is enormous on this and it just goes to show that you know it's easy to virtue signal from your um top one one half of one percent lifestyle when none of this ever affects you and the point you know people are calling it a political stunt the reason it was done yeah I, I'm comfortable calling it a political stunt because it worked. And what it did was focus the country. The whole country was talking about this. Focus the nation's attention on what is a real humanitarian crisis on our border. And it exists because this administration wants it to happen. And, you know, it, to put that right in the faces of Biden's strongest supporters at Martha's Vineyard, I think serves a really good purpose. Another couple, another couple points here is actually the people of the United States are behind this idea of sending illegal immigrants to sanctuary cities that have volunteered to handle these people, right? That's what they, that's why you're a sanctuary city. You're not going to turn them into the feds. We welcome uh, illegal immigrants here. 
uh, a poll just came out. CRC research, it was commissioned by National Review. 63% of likely voters agreed that sanctuary cities should share the burden of the 2 million illegals that have crossed the border in just the last two years. Hmm. Even 51% of Democrats think that's a good idea. Uh, and then one last point, you know, a lot was made. Oh, yeah, well, actually two points. These immigrants uh, from Venezuela actually came across the border in Texas. The federal government shipped them from Texas to Florida. So they were already human trafficked. They were already trafficked as human <laughs> beings point. by the Biden administration. And so I guess the Biden would be a co-conspirator in this criminal conspiracy <laughs> that he's going to be facing charges for. I don't know. Uh, but look, but, but and then there's a big difference. See, Venezuela, you, you can come to the United States and just cross the border at a proper place and apply for political asylum in the United States. I believe Venezuela is a country that qualifies for that because it's a socialist hellhole, which, you know, that's another discussion about socialism on the rise everywhere, especially the United States. But Venezuela is an oppressive socialist hellhole, and you should be able to apply for asylum in the United States if you manage to escape. The problem is uh, the, the the lack of actual proper border enforcement has our system completely overwhelmed by millions and millions of people who do not have a legitimate asylum application to make the United States. So then you have these Venezuelans that are just kind of you know stuck in limbo. And if we had an immigration policy that was handled in a, in a proper way, we'd be able to handle asylum seekers. And so you know the left is using these Venezuelans saying like, look, these are legitimate immigrants. Yeah, they are. But there are millions and millions who are not that have overwhelmed the system, which causes these sorts of things to happen. So, you know, if it's human trafficking, uh, what DeSantis did, then Mayor uh, Lawyer Lightfoot is also guilty of human trafficking by just without telling anybody, just shipping them off to Burr Ridge, I think is the wealthy suburb here in Chicago. And so is uh, the Biden administration for uh, people brought this up before. The, he's flown the, the Biden administration has flown uh, illegal immigrants all over the country on flights in the middle of the night. This has been going on for months, yet it's only when DeSantis makes a wonderful and 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 timely political point that now it becomes a criminal investigation. Our entire right. system is corrupt and broken. And that's why I think this this story actually, in a kind of funny way, really exemplifies that. Well, and, and Donnie, I think the, the reason that DeSantis did it and uh, Abbott also is because they wanted to bring the issue into the forefront of the uh, you know American public because the mainstream media is not reporting on this one iota. The no. only reporter who's been down at the border consistently for the past 18 months reporting on what's happening there is Bill Malugin of Fox News. And hey, guess what? The White House is, is incest with the fact that he's actually reporting hmm. on that. They've also shut down Fox News drones that show what's happening along the border because they want to keep this stuff a secret. That's why Kamal Harris has not been there. AOC has not been there. They do not want to bring attention to it. And this was a, a smart political move by the governors of Texas and Florida because by, by, by simply sending 50 people to a liberal enclave in the Northeast where you know the mainstream media is basically located, they have brought this to the attention of the people. So I think it was a, a, a win. Yeah, we'll see how it plays just to, out. Um, just, just to end cap this, uh, to to kind of put a cherry on this issue, you know, I I think what most people were frustrated about is how quickly the folks of Martha's Vineyard said, "We don't have the resources to to accommodate and to provide for." these these migrants and in one picture there's a i i saw in the news coverage in one picture there is a brand new very large home being built and if in they this should have been an issue that was embraced it, it was what desantis and abbott have been doing is providing perfect marxism for them right this was from each according to to their means to each or i'm sorry from each according to their their needs to each according to their means right so we desantis and abbott were providing these migrants um opportunities in the united states that even the four of us do not have and sure. and it was just such blatant hypocrisy and i think that's what is is kind of underlying that that um, poll that Jim referenced in National Review is, is just people see this as as why is why does El Paso, Texas have to bear this burden? Why does sure. Del Rio, Texas have to bear this burden? And if anybody's ever been to Jacksonville, Florida, why does Jacksonville have to bear this burden? I'm kidding for anybody watching. <laughs> but I, I just, David, Hoyt, our, David Hoyt, our staff in Jacksonville, knows that I tease him relentlessly about uh, 
about being Jacksonvillian. I, I know we're going to move on. Just just one last point. The, the reason that they were turned around as quickly as humanly possible out and gotten out of Martha's Vineyard, because every minute that they remained in Martha's Vineyard increased the danger that more would be sent. They did this so fast because there's no way they were going to handle any more than the ones that they got. And they were pretty horrified that the ones that, that arrived even arrived. But every minute, if they if they said, OK, we'll set up some cots in the community center. Uh, somebody calls Subway and get, you know, 50 Subway uh, sandwiches in here. We'll take care of them for the night. If they did something like that, they would be actually living up to their sanctuary city status, but also inviting more. There is no way they were ever going to put up with more. And uh, yeah, you know, I hope there's another plane with a hundred of them on next time and see how that goes. It's a, it's a, it's easy to virtue signal when, when you're not actually feeling the impact of any of the things that you're virtue signaling about. <laughs> All right. We spent way too much time on that. We got to get to our main <laughs> topic here. We brought Cameron on for a reason. So um, for those of you who are unaware, big tech censorship has been a big topic for the Heartland Institute for the past two, three years, maybe longer. Ever since having a kid, I have no concept of time anymore. So <laughs> uh, we have a big win to talk about today um, out of Texas, um, or at least it, it started in Texas. So we'll, we'll get to that. We'll definitely get to that. But I want to go back in time a little bit and set the stage for this discussion. So what started all of this? So uh, again, going back several years, definitely kind of starting in the Trump years, I want to say, that there was a bunch of stories coming out of uh, social media blocking, shadow banning conservatives, conservatives being banned outright, uh, YouTube channels being demonetized. I think Steven Crowder was one of the big ones of that, uh, just based on conservative stuff that he was saying, his channels were being demonetized, Amazon refusing to sell certain books, uh, Twitter and Facebook banning President Trump from their platforms, uh, Reddit quarantined the, tr the Trump subreddit just because they were pro-Trump, basically, the Hunter laptop story being crushed before the election. And all of those things have nothing to do with the crackdown on anything that was counter to the corporate media's portrayal of the COVID pandemic. And there's a million different examples of that. And I mean, at this point, I feel like the evidence is so overwhelming. Like I, I literally made that list of things that I just listed off just based on memory. Uh, so I know that there's so many more stories that uh, revolve around this conservative speech being censored by social media. And I kind of wonder if we can find an exhaustive list of all the examples of conservative speech, speech being squashed by social media. Uh, I don't know if uh, Andy in the background, you want to look for something like that. But um, are there any other specific examples that come to mind that I didn't mention or maybe didn't give enough attention to? Maybe in the chat, anyone can uh, throw in their throw in their suggestions or, or uh... trying to count out trying to count out the examples is like trying to count the grains of sand on a Martha's. Oh, well, that's beach. what I'm saying. There, there's just so <laughs> many. <laughs> I just wonder if there is like an exhaustive uh, exhaustive list. I, I'm not sure, but you, you should go. Uh, you, our friends at the one. our friends at the Media Research Center have all, have a lot of that information. Oh, so okay. MRC.org. Yeah. Everyone should go visit there. Um, let's see. So. Like, I know I've mentioned this before, but to me, the most important repercussion of this type of thing um, is it's actually more like wide, uh, widespread than you can even imagine. I've mentioned this before, but I think it bears repeating. And, and that's the uh, an anecdote that we have from Chris, who pitches a lot of our op-eds here at our organization. And he has heard from friendly publications Saying like, yeah, we're not going to take any of your climate change stuff. Uh, you know, we well, we agree with it, maybe even, but uh, we're not going to take it because if this gets shared on our social media, then uh, it could result in it being flagged, and that could trigger an algorithm that would reduce the reach of all of our media that's on social media that would affect our website and all of that stuff. So this chilling effect that's being caused by social media is more widespread and might be having effects on content that you didn't even know existed. So, uh, I mean, it kind of shows the importance of not relying on social media for news and information. Sorry, this is a little side tangent, but it illustrates just how important it is to go regularly to sites like heartland.org or heartlanddailynews.com or climaterealism.com or anything like that. So, um, so anyways, all of this caused this big, uh, this big debate to go on about, uh, about social media and their role when it comes to censoring things. So this whipped up quite a debate, like I said, not not just in general, but specifically on like the broader like right side of the aisle. 
So you had plenty of conservatives that were mad that this was happening, calling it unfair, some abuse of power, demanding something be done to balance the scales. However, there's plenty of libertarian and limited government types who reacted to these stories by saying, well, it's a private company. They can do whatever they want. If you don't like it, build your own social media company. And it's also worth noting that when conservatives did create their own social media company, Amazon, Apple, and Google nuked it from space. That's a side point. And then we even had a guy from Cato. Was it Cato? We had a guy on from Cato who was brought on to like yep. the censorship governance board uh, to, you know, and he was brought on basically to give the illusion that Facebook was being fair in its censoring ways. So, I feel like we were one of the first national think tanks that really identified this as a problem and like took a stance like rigidly against it. Um, Jim, you're our communications guy. Am I speaking out of turn there? Am I am I giving us too much credit? No, I, I think that's right. I mean, we're, we were one of the charter members of, uh, I mean, I, I mentioned the Media Research Center before. They put together a free speech alliance, and we were one of the charter members of that organization. We were talking to them as they were thinking of forming it. Uh, I think it was back, gosh, gosh, was it three, even three years ago now, because we started to see even before the censorship of right side, right leaning viewpoints being censored on social media was even really a thing. And it, of course, it all related to the, the 2020 election. And uh, actually, well, everything goes back to Trump being elected because the social media companies <laughs> will never forgive themselves for allowing Trump to be uh, for allowing the, the people of the United States to select Donald Trump as their president. They will never forgive themselves for that because they think they didn't do enough to stop this fascist from taking power in the White House. And they're just all so they've never really gotten over that. And that's really the underlying emotional, you know, being on the left means always being in close, close touch to your emotions. And they've never really gotten over that emotional uh, hurt that they had from letting Trump be elected president. And so, but uh, we, we, uh, we, we saw huge drops in our uh, ability or our, our reach on Facebook many years ago, um, about the time uh, yet again of another election season. This was like, oh, actually it was in the uh, 2016 election. We had, we were nice and we were hopping along with our, our impact and reach and stuff on Facebook. I still have the chart on the side of my, on uh, the wall here in my office. And then it just dropped off a cliff about three weeks before the election. So this has been going on for a long time. We actually shared that chart with our friends at Media Research Center, and that's kind of helped get the ball rolling because people wanted evidence of this happening. And we just looked it up and said, yeah, it's been weird. And it's funny, but it, this is all just intensified. And, uh, you know, what's what's great is that and that this is where I'll just hand it off to Cameron, I think, is that the Heartland Institute, we are a, a think tank that works a lot a lot with uh, state legislators. We are a national think tank, but kind of for the 38 years we've been in existence, we've really focused on kind of being uh, staff support for, for your local and your state legislature. And uh, we started working with them and telling them, you know, people think that big tech censorship is too big. We can't do anything about it. I'm just a, I'm just a state legislator in Kansas or Texas or Florida. What can I do to fight Facebook and Twitter uh, suppressing the speech of my constituents? Well, Cameron Schulte and our government relations department said, there's actually a lot you can do. Ain't that right, Cameron? There is, there is. Thanks. Um, so I was just check, double checking our numbers on this. There were, as of this spring, there were about 82 bills introduced in 35 states hmm. um, that sought to rein in big tech. And those bills took myriad forms. Um, Texas's provided a uh, private cause of action. Florida's um, allowed the state to um, kind of regulate social media in a way uh, that they'd have to disclose certain algorithms. Um, Utah actually passed a bill but was um, vetoed by Governor Cox there. Um, some of the other states, they took different tax or they took an all of the above approach. Um, one of my personal favorites was, were bills that would cancel state contracts with um, any big tech company, any big tech firm that censored or deplatformed or demonetized um, users. So, for example, in Mississippi, they introduced legislation that would have um, canceled a contract they had with uh, Amazon for a big, huge server farm uh, that they had. But that bill, um, many of these bills didn't go anywhere. Um, well, I won't say they didn't go anywhere, but what happened was a lot of the 
win was taken out of the sales by this was uh, uh, a lot of the win was taken out of the sales by the litigation surrounding the Florida legislation and the Texas legislation. The Texas mm. legislation is now colloquially known as HB 20. If you mention it to a lawyer, HB 20 or net choice v. Paxton, whom uh, uh, net choice being the trade association or the trade group for the big tech firms, Twitter, um, Twitter, Amazon, Facebook, Instagram, you name it. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of sets the, the 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 stage, as it were, for what was going on out in the states and what we were seeing. Um, we found ourselves basically crisscrossing the country. Um, Samantha in my shop, myself, James Taylor, the president, crisscrossing the country, chasing Net Choice and Net Choice chasing us, testifying the legislators, and. Um, you know, what's interesting, I, I just pulled up some of my notes. This is what my notes when I testify on a bill look like. You know, this this <laughs> this, is, this is how you have to stay on top of this. This is how the issue can can evolve in the two hours that you'll have a committee hearing. And so you're, scr you're scribbling notes, trying to keep track of all the crazy things that Big Tech will say to convince a legislator to uh, not work on this issue or to not pass their bills. And, and and there were there there were nuggets. Um, you you would get lobbyists for big tech that would basically come out and say, and, and one one comes to mind in Michigan, working on a bill um, that would have reigned in big tech. It was very very similar to Texas's legislation. Um, you basically had the lobbyist for big tech come out and say, yeah, we can take down whatever we want. The Section 230, hmm. the law that Congress gave us that re that kind of oversees us, we can take anything we want down for whatever reason we so choose, because Section 230 says if it's if it's lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, we can censor it. And so, built into their terms of service and their community standards, basically. Anything that's conservative has been deemed uh, otherwise objectionable. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and I want to, I want to, I want to get specifically into like the Texas law and how it was challenged and and uh, what the result of that was. But Chris, I mean, I know that you watch the mainstream media so that we don't have to, and then you watch the CNNs and the MSNBCs of the world and Fox and you know left or right, whatever you want to, whatever you consume. Um, when this when this uh, debate was kind of raging at, at, at its height, what was the argument uh, in favor of like big tech being being these kind of these arbiters that could censor at, at any type of whim? Because it seems to me, at least in the the things that I read, uh, you know, and generally, again, that's kind of from the right side of the aisle, that it's always like, oh, no, no free speech they could do whatever they want they're protected by free speech they're a private company they could do whatever they want they can censor anything is that what like the cnn's and the msnbc's of the world were saying too do you recall yeah they they definitely are like joe scarborough and and you know the cnn's of the world <clears throat> do argue well they're a private company so they can do whatever they want and if you don't uh you know abide by their rules of service well then too bad for you they can cancel you um but i also think that they uh, you know uh, they they did take a uh uh, a stance that, well, what these conservative people are saying, whether it's, you know, about the election or about the vaccine or about lockdowns or school closures or whatever over the past few years, well, that should be censored, they they, they claimed. So right. they, they were constantly in agreement with what, you know, Facebook or Twitter or, you know, Instagram or whomever was censoring because it happened to align with their their philosophy and their ideology. So 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 they 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 wanted to have it both ways. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. So uh Cameron, this this lawsuit that we're gonna talk about kind of censor, centers around uh specifically the Texas law. Is that just like kind of the most wide ranging uh attack on tech censorship that there exists or is it just like the biggest venue or, or why why is this kind of like the center of this whole uh judicial process sure so texas florida and texas florida and utah all passed bills um that sought to rein in big tech right 
Um, Florida's was immediately sued um, and hmm. enjoined by a federal district court, but uh, net choice uh, sued to stop that. Utah's bill um, was vetoed by their governor on citing constitutional concerns. And then when Texas passed theirs, um, Net Choice also sued to stop that. And uh, Texas's law, HB 20, was then enjoined by the district court there. Um, A.G. Paxton then appealed the uh, injunction to the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans. And the Fifth Circuit said, uh, yeah, no, this bill's good, this law is good, and uh, we're going to lift the injunction, we're gonna lift the stay. Net Choice then um, appealed straight up to the Supreme Court of the United States, where the Supreme Court basically lifted the stay and said, no, the bill cannot go uh, into effect pending resolution of lower courts. So then last week, Friday, a week ago tomorrow, uh, the Fifth Circuit, in New Orleans uh, lifted that stay and issued a 150-ish page opinion, um, basically eviscerating Net Choice's um, legal <laughs> arguments that they have a First Amendment right to censor. And uh, basically that's the thrust of their argument is Net Choice and Big Tech feels they have, despite uh, Congress declaring them platforms, uh, they feel they have a right to censor because as a private company, they, um, they enjoy certain uh, First Amendment free speech protections. Um, we filed uh, an amicus brief in that actually, as a matter of fact, and in uh, um, the courts cited us actually, which was, was kind of exciting for us. Um, mm -hmm. But nonetheless, um, the Fifth Circuit eviscerated um, net choices, legal arguments or big tax legal arguments saying, no, you either have to choose. You are either a platform or you're a publisher, but right. you not be both. Yeah. Right. And, and that's, that's the heart of the matter, you know, and I know that we've talked about this in length before, but again, this is one of those things that bears repeating section two thirty. Uh, the idea that these social media companies are supposed to be open platforms, not publishers, and because they're open platforms, they're given this uh, special protection that prevents them from being sued for what some random person posts on that site, uh, the way that publishers could be held liable. However, when a company starts censoring things based on political rhetoric or just whatever they just don't want to have on their site, now they cross that line into publisher territory. And you should lose, when you do that, lose your liability protection. And this is like that part of the debate that I think like even people left or right of the aisle are unaware of. They're unaware of this nuance mm -hmm. when they're talking about what private companies can do, at least back in the early days of the conversation. But like that's that to me is the most important part. Well, Donnie, you, you bring up a good point because when I remember messaging with Jim on this issue when it first broke and I was, before I fully appreciated the issue, I, I wasn't entirely comfortable weighing in saying, hey, wait, these are private actors. I'm not so sure that we should be weighing in on this issue because don't interactive websites like Facebook and Twitter, for example, have a First Amendment right to remove content? Sure, they, sure they do. But then they're the Washington Post. And then they're the New York Times, and <laughs> right, then right. they're uh, right, and then they're subject to libel laws. But that's not the protection Section Two Hundred and Thirty in Congress gave them. So they have to pick a side, and that's what the the federal courts have told them. And this this is going to SCOTUS. This is uh, Justice Clarence Thomas has basically been asking for this lawsuit for several years now because. Texas came in and said, you're a common carrier. Um, the Texas law said, you're a common carrier and we're gonna treat you like common carrier. You cannot discriminate. You cannot censor your users um, for viewpoint, for, for what they're expressing, not necessarily content, but for viewpoint. And so, so what you have here is, is Texas came in and said, you're gonna be AT&T. You're gonna be an electric utility for the purposes right. of free speech and people sharing ideas because 97% of all social media traffic flows through Twitter, Instagram, and now, and now TikTok. But 97% yeah. of all social media traffic flows through three firms, 
Yeah, I, Danny, I like Danny. I I like when you bring up. So I'll go to you, Chris, in one second. But I like when you bring up like the energy carriers. Like, could you imagine like people running to these like energy companies and and defending their right to shut off energy to some house because they don't like the Trump sign in their front yard? It would oh, be ridiculous. Guaranteed. <laughs> oh, guaranteed. Look, look, the Heartland Institute's offices are we're, we're in occupied territory, right? I mean, <laughs> if they could shut our offices down, they would have by now. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Chris, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I, I think this is also part of a bigger debate happening in the country right now about free speech. I think in the past few years, people are uh, starting to dismiss the notion of free speech. And they and especially I think younger people are saying, well, if it's hate speech or if it offends somebody, then it should be able to be banned. And that's not free speech. Free speech is is very black and white. You either have it or you don't. There is yeah. no we have some free speech for some stuff, but we don't have free speech for other stuff. So I think this is like, you know, uh, like a line in the sand that must be drawn. The United States of America was founded upon freedom of speech. You are allowed to say what you think. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter if these technologies have the ability to uh, censor it or not. This is, I think, just a part of a much larger societal conversation that we are that we are having and need to have. In which, yes. in which, are you allowed to say what you think, even if it might hurt some people's feelings, or even if it might, you know, not, uh, you know, walk the walk the line with what people want you to say? I think yeah, this, is, I, this is much larger than just big tech censorship. Yeah, no, I think you're right, and and just keep that in mind when I read some of the responses to this, uh, the lawsuit uh, uh, decision that was that was granted. Uh, because some of it's ridiculous, but I just want to read some of the statements uh, in the aftermath of this of this decision. So the majority statement says, um, so this is actual from like the judges that ruled on this. In urging such sweeping relief, the platforms offer a rather odd inversion of the First Amendment. The court's majority decision said. That amendment, of course, protects every person's right to the freedom of speech, but the platforms argue that buried somewhere in the person's enumerated right to free speech lies a corporation's enumerated right to muzzle speech. So that was a pretty powerful statement from the from the circuit court. Uh, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's statement, uh, this was on Twitter, he put, Breaking, I just secured a massive victory for the Constitution and free speech in federal court. Hashtag big tech cannot censor the political voices of any Texan. The Fifth Circuit rejects the idea that corporations have a freewheeling First Amendment right to censor what people say. And then net choice, the losers... Of this court decision, uh, <laughs> in a statement, we are disappointed that the Fifth Circuit split decision undermines the First Amendment protections and creates a circuit split with the unanimous decision of the Eleventh Circuit. We remain convinced that when the U.S. Supreme Court hears one of our cases, it will uphold the First Amendment rights of websites, platforms, and apps. So, of course, they're uh, disappointed because they're losers of this decision. And uh, but, but uh, to reference some, come on, people, you got to laugh at these things. Uh, but no, it, uh, it, <laughs> there, there's been. Well, a... I'll tell you what, Donnie, about Net Choice. Net Choice is a free market organization, or at least purportedly. And you know, on ninety five percent of all other issues, chances are we're going to agree with them. But okay. the circuit court did get this right. And the fact of the matter is, and this kind of alludes to Chris, and maybe putting a finer point on on Chris's remarks. Free speech is not subject to corporate capture, right? And generally speaking, though, corporations should be able to allow, be allowed to transact themselves how they so choose. But in this case, they're operating within the framework of Section 230, and they have been given a liability gift and free from, from their editorial decisions uh, or liability a, a gift free of their editorial decisions. And they want to have their cake and to eat it too. And the court said, no, you, you, right. you're either going to be able to be sued or you're not, but you're not going to get to game the judicial system. And you're not going to get to game public policy just to, 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 to ensure that you have this narrative. And then, and now we find out, and I'm going to go on a rant and I'm sorry, but you now have the Missouri and Louisiana attorneys general suing big tech and we're finding out this level of heretofore unforeseen heretofore 
unseen collusion between the Biden administration and yeah. Big Tech yeah. to actually muzzle people. It is in black and white. It is there in pixels and pen for everyone to see how the Biden administration and Big Tech colluded. And, and that only just further bolsters our point and yes, will sir. probably actually put wind back in the sails where you're, I think you're going to see the wings of big tech flip by state lawmakers all over the country. Yeah. The, uh, so, so there's, there's, a, there's one more reaction that I want to read and this is from Vox. So, uh, if you're un, unfamiliar with Vox, they are one of the most left leaning <laughs> rags on, on the internet, but, uh, their response to this, they're actually, the title is kind of revealing. The title of this article is two Republican judges just let Texas seize control of Twitter and Facebook. I, mean, I would love to see that, like <laughs> that headline fact checked, but that's their headline. They actually ran with and the reading from the article says an especially right-wing panel of an already conservative United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit handed down an astonishing opinion on Friday, effectively holding that the state of Texas may seize control of content moderation at major social media platforms such as Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Now, the Fifth Circuit is attempting to permanently reinstate the law. Um, its latest opinion, which explains why the court sided with Texas's law, is exceedingly difficult to square with the longstanding First Amendment law. Uh, indeed, it turns that law on its head, holding that the government may force private companies, or at least large private social media companies, to publish content that the companies do not wish to host. So that statement alone is just completely in contradiction to the all that Section 230 stuff that I was talking about. It just ignores all of that. In fact, I bet if you like control find Section 230, it doesn't mention it in this article at all. Uh, the, Texas, the Texas law is potentially an existential threat to the social media industry. Its supposed anti-censorship provisions are so strict that it would likely prevent the major social media platforms from removing content touting Nazism or white supremacy, or even from blocking uh, social media users who engage in campaigns of harassment against others. Jim, I'm going to go to you because this just seems the idea of labeling something existential threat is just like candy nowadays. You could just label that on anything, but the idea that like some loser on Twitter is going to be talking about how they're like a white supremacist and that's an existential threat to Twitter. is so mind numbingly ridiculous. I think only you can put it into words. You said so many things in reading that story and the other comments that triggered me. I'm having trouble getting my thoughts organized because there's so many things to react to there. Uh, first of all, none of this would be happening to our social media giants if they adhered to two words in Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Those two words are good faith. They have never acted, and this goes back to the 2016 election where they were arguably acting in good faith by allowing all sorts of political speech because they are a platform not a publisher, but they did not act in good faith, which is why uh, they did not act in good faith. People on the right had their constitutionally protected speech violated repeatedly. And, and as uh, Cameron mentioned, with the coordination of government actors, when, when a private company acts in direct coordination with a government agency, like say the CDC or, or Fauci or the White House, they are actually then government actors. So they are, violate, they are actually violating the First Amendment as a private entity because they're working in concert with, with a government agency. So that's first off. But none of this would be happening if they acted in good faith, but they couldn't do it because big tech is dominated by radical leftists. And they cannot, and as if you know anything about the left, they don't want to debate anything. They just want to order, order what's truth and ban what they consider not truth, which is anything that opposes them and their agenda. And this case came down... The, the, H, uh, what they call HR 20 in Texas was relatively simple and straightforward. It, it required tech companies to provide equal access to view, uh, you know, equal access to conservatives to their platforms. And they were, and it, it's, it's that way because Twitter and Facebook and, you know, the comments on YouTube and all the, all the big tech giants were engaging in viewpoint discrimination. Uh, so, you know, and again, they are, they, they, it's not that they want to be either a publisher or a platform. They want to be a publisher when it suits their ideological purposes, and they want to be a platform when it when it um, suits their ideological exactly. purposes. And so the argument that NetChoice made, and Cameron had pointed that out, 
was, and, and the Vox story pointed this out, supposedly this decision or that law uh, violates the free speech rights of a private entity like Facebook or, or Twitter, right? Uh, it would if they were actually a publisher and defined as such in the law and were not enjoying the special protections that they get under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. It'd be like a newspaper. And you can't force, like, say, uh, well, I think there's a case law on this uh, involving the Miami Herald. You can't force a newspaper to publish something it doesn't want to. Sure. Why? Because it is a private entity and has the right to choose what to publish and what not to publish. So uh, these social media that. giants are platforms and they are protected by the law because they are supposed to allow and have a good faith effort to allow all viewpoints to be shared on their platforms. They have not done that. They brought this upon themselves. So if 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 we are seeing the end of social media as we know it in the United States and around the world, good. Because <laughs> social media as it is right now around the world is discriminatory and uh, it, it violates the free speech rights of half of this country. Yeah. yeah the, um, the, real real quick. Wait. Cameron, yeah. real quick, just for the just the potential that we'll have time to talk about our like last story, I'm going to give you final word on this topic, and that starts now. Go ahead. Uh, just to, Jim, your 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 point was the 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 landmark Supreme Court case that said yes, the newspapers are publishers and they have free speech rights as New York Times or Sullivan v. New York Times, landmark case. And and that case actually was cited uh, extensively by NetChoice. And then the other case um, was about the uh, gay pride uh, parade in Boston, where they felt the gay the organizers of the parade felt that they could um, prohibit um, homosexual police from participating in the parade. And NetChoice leaned heavily on that case. And in in the in the judges in the Fifth Circuit, citing citing us, we didn't use this phrase, but citing our legal arguments, basically said what they're calling was, quote, ridiculous switcheroo. Basically saying, have your cake, eat it too. Um, so that's what we're going to see, uh, or that's what we're seeing. And, and this case is going to go to the Supreme Court. Any uh, timeline on that? Thirsty for it. Do you think any, any any timeline for that? Are we talking like years from now? Are we talking about months from now? Do you have any idea? Well, on this particular case, there's not so much as litigation and discovery involved. So um, a, a, as a process, this case may already be ripe for okay. SCOTUS review. And you could see him take oral arguments or hear oral arguments possibly as soon as the spring. All right, uh, so we got eight minutes. I want to talk about this, so I'm not making a lie out of my thumbnail. Um, <laughs> President Joe Biden. President Joe Biden did a 60 Minutes interview recently. Andy, ready this next clip here, where he said a bunch of dumb stuff, as you would expect Joe Biden to say. Uh, but one of the things that he said I thought was very uncontroversial. Let's go ahead and play that uh, that clip too, Andy. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's But the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing. And I think this is a perfect example of it. So again, didn't think that was very controversial. Moved on with my life. Uh, <laughs> someone, someone suggested that we do this, uh, that we talk about this. So I started looking it up, and there was just a slew of articles of people very upset at uh, at uh, President Joe Biden and those remarks. Uh, one of those articles was from the New York Times. Biden says the pandemic is over, but at least 400 people are dying daily starts off with the statement that 400 to 500 Americans are dying every day of COVID-19. goes through a list of examples of people that recently died from COVID. No, they're and dying with COVID, not of COVID. <laughs> right. Uh, it also says, uh, to begin with, the president does not have the authority to announce the end of a pandemic. The World Health Organization, an arm of the United Nations, designated the, uh, the coronavirus outbreak a pandemic in 2020. If anyone is responsible for declaring an end, experts say it should be the organization and its director general, Dr. Tedros, whatever his name is. They were like very personally insulted, the New York Times seemed to be, by uh, President Joe Biden's statement that the pandemic is over. Chris, I shortchanged you at the end of the last topic, so I'll give you first swing on this uh, on this issue. All right, I got a couple thoughts on this. So first of all, I used to be a big fan of 60 Minutes. I thought they were one of the best news magazines in uh, the country, and they, over the past couple of years, 
have just become, uh, you know, talking heads for the Democratic Party. So it doesn't uh, surprise me that this interview was just full of softball questions by Scott Pelley. But Donnie, I think we also need to understand that Joe Biden has a uh, tendency to say something and then minutes, if not sometimes minutes, hours and days later, the White House walks them back. So this did not surprise me that much. But as Cameron brought up earlier in our uh, conversation, Joe Biden is walking a fine line because many of his policies, whether it's still masking kids in Head Start or the student loan forgiveness you know, hmm. scheme, is based on the uh, the pandemic still being in place. So on one <laughs> hand, he's saying the pandemic's over, but then a lot of his uh, you know uh, executive departments are saying, no, Mr. President, it's not over because we would lose a lot of power if the if the pandemic were to uh, come to an end. A lot of governors too are still claiming that the uh, pandemic is not over because it allows them to wield uh, their executive, uh, you know, emergency powers as as long as they want. So, you know, I think most American people do think that the pandemic is over. However, like I tell you, Donnie, uh, this morning when I was, you know, getting ready for work, I see uh, kids walking around with masks on outside while they're getting ready for the bus. So I still mm. think that a lot of people are not, you know, are, are not on board with the pandemic being over because they're getting such mixed messages. And this is just another example of it. Biden says it's over on 60 minutes. And then, you know, the next day, Dr. Fauci comes out and says, no, it's not over. Kareem Jean-Pierre <laughs> comes out and says, no, it's not over. Uh, you know, so so the American people are confused. Yeah, Jim, what, what do you think? Uh, I mean, because we can, we can go through all the different agencies, all the different governors, all the different uh, government structures or media and all the skin that they have in the game for perpetuating this this idea that the pandem pandemic isn't over and that it's going to go on forever. But why would Biden say that then? What do you think, Jim? I think he said that because, I don't know, he believes it. That could be because of that, <laughs> because it because he accidentally said the truth. Right. I, mean, I don't know what story you read. It's like, was it 400 or 500 people dying with COVID? Well, let's just even say they died of COVID, to which I say, because I'm a heartless jerk. So what? It doesn't. How many people die in car accidents every day? How many people die from, you know, an accident, you know, falling off a ladder every day or gun violence and all that stuff? It's 500, about, 400 people. fentanyl? That's, yeah. Oh, there we go. Now that's even a big, that's, that actually is a real big crisis. But, you know, the reason this is important and you mentioned the, you know, the whole student loan giveaway debacle, $500 billion uh, was, was predicated on the fact that we're still in a COVID emergency, but we've obviously have not been in a COVID emergency for at least a year. Uh, but there are still 10 states that have declared COVID emergencies for which their governors have emergency power to basically rule as dictators. Those are California, Connecticut, Delaware, Washington, Minnesota, Texas, Illinois, yeah, Kansas, West Virginia, and Rhode Island. So just last week, that was it was the 34th time our governor, uh, J.B. Pritzker, extended his emergency. He has spent 69% of his time in office under emergency COVID power. It's absurd. And these things need to need to end. And that's that's why, you know, him slipping out the truth that we're, we no longer have a COVID emergency. Uh, th they, there needs to be put pressure on, especially those 10 state governors and everyone else to end these emergency powers. They have to go because it's tyrannical. It's not the way our government is supposed to operate. Uh, Cameron, we are very, very short on time. But if you have anything to add to this uh, topic of discussion, now's your opportunity. I actually think the reason um, everybody wants him to not say the pandemic is over, I think it's actually far more insidious. And it is his, his ability and penchant to to govern and to legislate without Congress. Um, Congress does not do much. Um, it, they're not doing much because that's the way the system's designed. And that system frustrates a liberal agenda. And that liberal agenda is big spending on teachers, on public sector unions that like to build roads, that like to, that, that, that work for the schools, their government employees, to declare the pandemic over means the spigot's going to get turned off sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. Donnie, I, I also think that this uh, has election uh, ramifications because as we know, in 2020, they loved their mail-in ballots and they loved all the uh, pandemic uh, restrictions and how they impacted the election. Yeah, which and, all facilitated the freest and most fair election of all time. We got to make sure right, to say right. that. Uh, yeah, you of, know. Course, of course. <laughs> thank you, so. our, thank you, our host, YouTube. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, we got to say that.
Uh, all right, we're already uh, we're already pretty much at the end of the show, so I want to thank everyone for joining us for this episode of the In the Tank podcast. Join us every week for a new episode with audio-only listeners that are catching this on a Friday. Join us a day earlier on Thursdays at noon central time. We are streaming on YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and Rumble. You can join the conversation, put your comments and questions in the chat. Maybe we'll show your comments on the screen. Maybe we'll refer to your questions, respond to your questions on the fly. Please uh, hit that subscribe button, hit that share button on this content, leave a comment underneath the video if you're watching on YouTube. All of these things help break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people. If you would like, you could follow us on Twitter at In the Tank Pod. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, feel free to email us at In the Tank Podcast at gmail.com. Jim Lakely, where can the fine people find you? At Jay Lakely on soon to be freer Twitter, at Heartlandinst on Twitter, and always visit heartland.org. And Cameron Schulte, where can the fine people find work from you and government relations and the like? Heart, uh, on Twitter at HeartlandGR. Thanks again for having me, guys, everybody. Oh, thank you for joining us. And Chris Talgo, what do you have to pitch today? StoppingSocialism.com. We are. Uh, giving you the inside info on some of the crazy socialist candidates the uh, left is running for office this uh, November. And I think it will really blow your mind. Fantastic. All right. Thank you all for tuning in. We will talk to you next week.